Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. The beatings continued as the large gates bearing the ominous words Buchenwald Concentrations Lager were opened and the men shuffled through them into the camp. One American flight sergeant, who had suffered a badly sprained ankle when landing by parachute, had his walking stick kicked from under his arm. There are no cripples in here, growled the guard. The airmen had hoped their final destination would be a properly administered prisoner of war camp, but that forlorn hope was rapidly fading, as John Harvey recalled. Beyond the gate, I could see people dressed in the now familiar blue and white striped prison guard of the work gangs. To me, this looked more like a place of internment than a Luftwaffe-run POW camp. At that time, I knew there were civilian internment camps in Germany, although I didn't know any of their names. Perhaps this was one of them. Perhaps it would only be a temporary stopover before the POWs were transferred to a proper camp. This certainly couldn't be Stalagov III, nor any other prisoner of war camps of which I had heard, not with people in striped prison suits and SS guards everywhere. Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Colin Burgess has written or co-authored nearly 40 books covering the Australian prisoner of war experience, aviation and human space exploration. Today, I'm talking to Colin Burgess about his latest book, Destination Buchenwald. Colin, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Good morning, dear Greg, and uh, your listeners. This book, Destination Buchenwald, uh, we're talking about a period during World War II, August 1944, where things were starting to change in the Second World War. What were the circumstances in Europe at that time, and what was the state of the war? The state of the war was that the Allies were... uh, Moving in on Germany, the D-Day landings took place in June of 1944. There was a lot of disruption, disharmony. The uh, Americans and the Allies were bombing installations such as railways and crossings and factories. Uh, they were gaining the upper hand very rapidly. Uh, there was a lot of uh, enmity towards them in Germany. And any time these airmen were rounded up, shot down, uh, taken prisoner. They sometimes received very harsh treatment, and particularly around about the time that uh, Paris was about to be liberated, the Germans were being extraordinarily cruel to those they captured, the special operations people as well as the airmen. And uh, there was a lot of confusion, and uh, the airmen were that had been shot down were part of this confusion. Initially, these airmen, and it's a group of 100 or so, including Australian and New Zealand airmen, initially they ended up in Frayne Prison just outside Paris. Uh, This, of course, wasn't to be their final destination, but from the point of view of the Reich, what was the purpose of that stint in Frayne? Okay, once the airmen were rounded up, they were taken to the Gestapo headquarters in Paris for interrogation, and the interrogations were brutal because the Germans wanted to know who'd helped them. 
uh, be it villagers or members of the French underground. And the interrogations and beatings uh, were quite severe. And this was the prelude to them being eventually taken out to friend prison, uh, where they were locked up for further interrogations. But at that stage of the war, of course, the Allies, they were moving in on Paris and the Germans had uh, to get rid of these people, not only the airmen, but the collaborators, the special operations, executive people, spies, particularly people like Odette, Samson, they had to get them out of Paris away from the Allies. And the most expeditious way was to send them off to these concentration camps, one of which was, uh, of course, Buchenwald. And for the women prisoners, they were sent mostly to Ravensbrück. The administration of Buchenwald, while cruel and vindictive by all the accounts in your book, it was also quite bizarre. You relate stories of 18-hour roll calls in minus 15 degrees, but also curious things like a small zoo being created by the commandant, which included the construction of a bear pit. These sort of things suggest something well beyond what we might know as a POW camp. What do you think the purpose of Buchenwald was? Buchenwald was established as a working camp. It wasn't a, uh, a camp such as Auschwitz, where people were sent straight to the gas chambers. This was a working camp where they worked in a quarry, they worked in factories adjoining uh, the prisoner of war camp or the uh, concentration camp. But Buchenwald was quite an extraordinary place, a brutal, bloody place. There were horrible instances uh, connected with the zoo and the bears. Often, if a prisoner misbehaved, they would take that prisoner to the bear pit and throw him in. And the bears were kept hungry for that purpose. And this poor creature would be thrown in and devoured, much to the laughter and delight of the SS guards, Gestapo guards looking on. But there was also a riding academy where the commandant's wife used to ride her horse around as riding academy. Prisoners worked hard. They had to get up at all hours of the morning to attend roll calls, which would go on for hours, literally hours. And if you can imagine standing in a parade ground for several hours on a freezing cold winter's morning, dressed in thin pyjamas, and you can't even make yourself warm by clenching your fists. If you clenched your fist, that would be seen as a sign of oppression and you would be beaten by a guard. There were other people at the camp that uh, were notorious, particularly the commandant, Carl Koch. He and his wife took up residence at Buchenwald and Carl began to use the camp for his own personal good. Obviously, when people arrived at the camp, they were stripped of all their personal belongings, some of which were quite valuable, and Carl would sell these on the side and amass a small fortune for himself, which at the end of the war caused him to be hauled before his uh, SS superiors and he was sentenced to death for profiteering. But his wife was also something extraordinary. They called her the Red Witch of Buchenwald. She would ride around the camp on her horse and if anybody dared to look at her, she'd have them sent to the medical block. If she saw anybody with a nice tattoo, 
she would send them to the medical block. They would have, they would be killed. Their tattoos would be taken from their bodies by the doctors and formed into such gruesome articles as lampshades. And she became notorious for this. She was a very, very cruel woman. And she used the power that she had to uh, pleasure herself with the misery and the death of the prisoners. And if all of this wasn't enough, uh, there are actually medical experiments undertaken there too. Um, it's interesting you uh, cite Dr. Mark Klein, a professor of histology at the University of Strasbourg, who was also interned at Buchenwald, relates the conditions under which so-called slave scientists were, were forced to work. It seems that the purpose of those me medical experiments were, well, there was no purpose to those medical experiments. The doctors within the camp felt there were, it was an incredible opportunity for them to try to cure such things as typhoid, homosexuality, and other what they called diseases. Uh, they would take people out of the camp and they would experiment in them. They would inject them with things. They would castrate them. They would do all manner of things to these people. And eventually, of course, once they'd concluded their experiment, the prisoner was dead and they were sent off to the crematorium. But these experiments, so-called experiments, were, were brutal things and nobody would survive without recollections of being so ill-treated and uh, the subject of just gross inhumanity. Most people never came out of the experimental block. It wasn't just these airmen. It was Jews, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, trade unionists, communists, and so many different groups that represent the whole gamut of humanity. It makes me wonder, what was the yardstick, the measure by which the Nazis would determine who should be sent to Buchenwald? Initially, once Buchenwald had been opened, and this was prior to the commencement of the war, they were sending political prisoners to Buchenwald. They were sending people regarded as undesirable, which included people such as gypsies, homosexuals, uh, Jews, these people were regarded as secondary people by the Nazis. And the camp evolved from that. Once the war began, then they started sending traitors, uh, people from the uh, special secret services, anybody that needed to be placed somewhere where they could be uh, out of the sight of everybody. The airmen in particular, there was 168 airmen who arrived in Buchenwald and they arrived under orders. And I've got a copy of the orders here. And right at the top, it refers to them as terrafliegers, which is terrafliers. And there's a special annotation on there that says not to be transferred to another camp, which in other words meant they had to be eliminated. And the final death toll from Buchenwald is somewhere around 51, 52,000, with 17,000 deaths since January 1945. But the toll on human life doesn't really end there. What were the prospects for survivors beyond Buchenwald? What kind of lives could they possibly lead after such an experience? Well, my experience in talking to the airmen is that many of them survived better than others. Only two of the airmen, 168 airmen, actually perished in Buchenwald. They died in the medical or in the hospital centre. The others were released 
to a prisoner of war camp, Stalaglov III, under orders of the German Luftwaffe, who had discovered that they were being held in a concentration camp, quite illegally. But these men, they had experienced things that no one should ever witness. They saw children being loaded into the back of trucks and gassed. They saw piles of bodies. They had to endure the filth, the stench of living in these camps in, in huts where people were dying daily of all manner of diseases without any prospect of survival. And it's no wonder that many of these men for many years after still suffered nightmares and terrors. I, I can recall one gentleman that I interviewed who used to wake up if there was a thunderstorm and his wife would find him cringing in their wardrobe, clutching a shotgun. And she was terrified that one day he would actually take his own life. The Emma Moroni in Buchenwald for 10 weeks, which doesn't sound very much at all, but to them it was a lifetime. And in one case caused such mental anguish that one fellow passed away through sheer terror in recalling his weeks in Buchenwald. Other, other men managed to cope a lot better, but they all confessed to me that they still had nightmares, that their lives were never the same again. They set out to conquer Hitler and the Third Reich and to fly the aircraft, and they came back broken men. There's a final question to you, Colin. There's a very curious outcome to all of this. The Australian government initially denied that any Australian servicemen were held in concentration camps. How do you come to terms with that denial and what has happened since? I came into this, this situation in the middle of it. A couple of the airmen told me that in the 1960s, the British government had paid compensation to their servicemen who had been held in concentration camps, not only Book and Vol, but many other camps. And so they logically got in touch with their Australian government and said, uh, we were in Buchenwald, you know, is there any chance of some sort of compensation? They were denied. They were told quite flatly that no Australian servicemen or women were held in concentration camps in Germany. So I had to start doing some background checking and eventually I came up with a paper with their names, their concentration camp numbers, and it was the transportation orders to Buchenwald. I presented this to the Australian government along with their submissions that they've been putting in for many, many years. And eventually a more compassionate government decided that yes, it was proved that they were prisoners of war who'd been held illegally in a concentration camp. So in uh, 1988, each of the Australian airmen were awarded $10,000 compensation. We had a celebratory get-together in Canberra in 1988. And the press took great notice of these airmen and their stories. It was an intriguing story. It was a story of valour. It was a story of persistence. It was a story of a man such as the squadron leader, Phil Lamerson, who was in charge of the 168 airmen. And the way that he conducted the airmen 
during their time within Buchenwald. Uh, his was an extraordinary story. He was a New Zealander, a squadron leader, and it, it's doubtful that many of the airmen would have left Buchenwald had it not been for Phil and his tenacity, he, the way that he conducted the men whilst they were in the camp. And not only liaised with the underground members within Buchenwald, because there were several there who were plotting to uh, get out of the camp to overthrow the uh, SS guards, but he maintained a military decorum that these men adhered to. And because they maintained that decorum, all but two of them survived and were sent off to eventually a proper prisoner of war camp, Stalagru, Luft Three in Sagan. Colin Burgess, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. You're very welcome, Greg. Thank you very much. I've been talking to Colin Burgess about his book, Destination Book and Vault. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadymagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadymagazine.com.au.